delight to have you with us today, whether you're joining uh, online because you're working at home, like a lot of people at the moment, or you've got some small watch party, or you're here in person, a really very, very warm welcome to you. Um, uh, we really want to stand with you at this incredibly complex and, and difficult time. My name's Peter Wrench, and City Legal uh, exists to consider the bigger questions of life with silks and suits in cities right around Australia. And um, uh, we do that by looking at the Bible together. Now, format for those who are new, and, and a particular welcome to you if you are, is a short talk followed by a Q&A. And you can ask questions at any time by texting the phone number you find on the sheets in front of you here, or uh, on the chat, you can see there's a phone number there. And you'll also notice that there's a, a reference, a link to a Bible reading, which we'll have in just a moment. Now, we're very privileged to have uh, speaking for us again today, Dave Robertson, a national communicator with City Bible Forum. He's completing his three-week series in the book of Romans, uh, which is a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a small group of Christians living in Rome. And uh, he's going to be looking at chapter two, The Righteous Judge. And as I said, you can look at the, the passage by clicking on that link in the chat, um, or it's printed in the outlines if you're here. So uh, without further ado, I want to welcome David Robertson. Thank you so much. Yeah, you should have the passage here. Um, I don't know if it'd be worthwhile because the uh, microphone picks up background noise if we could ask the guys to turn the radio off. You think that might work, Peter? I think that would be easier for people who are listening. Um, I'm going to look at this passage for about 15 minutes, bearing in mind that uh, I know somebody who started to preach through the Book of Romans and took 15 years preaching every week. Uh, and only got to chapter 13. So uh, this is somewhat less detail. Um, but I hope that, again, as we're considering in terms of the law, and here we're looking particularly at the, the, the righteous judge. I'm not going to read the passage because you have it. If you're here, you've got it in the sheet. You can click up and get it online as well. But I want to refer particularly to the phrase, uh, this will take place on the day when God judges people people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So let me just uh, bring out some uh, principles from this passage. Number one is simply this. We're all equal before God. We love the teaching of equality. Everyone talks about equality, diversity, and tolerance. Very few people practice it. Um, as human beings, we're all made equally in the image of God. The idea of equality has a Christian basis. It is not science. Science tells you that some people are smarter, faster, richer, stronger, and so on. The Bible says that fundamentally all people are equal. Now, I would challenge anyone to provide the fundamental basis for equality before the law. Uh, equality before the law is fundamentally a concept that uh, arose in, in Christendom, particularly out of the, the Protestant Reformation, and actually particularly in the United Kingdom, the English-speaking nations, and so on. Yet we now take it as axiomatic for the whole of society. My view is, by the way, that as we retreat from Christianity, we will find that there is not equality before the law. Um, that, for me, is... is one of the more disturbing things that we will lose as we reject our Christian roots. That's one of the fruits that we will lose. 
Now, Paul has been talking about the situation in Rome, which we looked at last week, and I'm not going to go over that again. He now turns to the religious, particularly the Jewish people, and uh, the answer to immorality or wrong in society, it must be religion, of course. And therefore, um, Judaism was probably the most pure of all the religions in that regard. And the Jewish leaders were very good at condemning pagan society. Religious people are often very good at condemnation and judging as well. So what does Paul say in this? He says, first of all, verses 1 to 5, all people are equal. Therefore, religious people have no right to pass judgment upon other people because we do the same things. So there's a really sad story coming out of the United States. And there's lots of things about this that, that are, are disturbing. And it's uh, the story of Jerry Falwell Jr., who is the, uh, or was, he's just resigned as the president of Liberty University, uh, the largest inverted commas, Christian university in the United States with 100,000 students. Hugely influential place. And there is a picture of uh, Mrs. Falwell, or there's a clip of Mrs. Falwell sitting down and saying people need to vote for President Trump because of family values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Jerry Falwell has been forced to resign because of overwhelming evidence published in Reuters and elsewhere of his wife having an affair while she's teaching us about family values and he being part of that. He knowing it and watching it and so on. Um, it particularly sticks in the throat and you will often find it's one of the worst things possible. I, I, I know that if I wanted to completely destroy everything I'd ever done just to slip up in, in that way would be it. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you know, just be careful because have you ever noticed how harsh we are in our judgment of others and so lenient to all ourselves? Um, I'll give you one just tiny example. Uh, I remember someone being absolutely furious at the noise, the slight noise that some children were making in church. You know, and that's disgraceful. Children nowadays don't know how to behave. Until a couple of years later, she brought her grandchildren who were prime examples of the truth of the doctrine of original sin because, <laughs> because they 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 were they would you know now they could have been ripping up the chairs and stabbing people and she would have said oh the wee pets let them be don't be so harsh they're just children and you see the hypocrisy involved in that other examples rich rulers who take excessive taxes for themselves and complain of their subjects being greedy. Freud, of course, called this projection, that we condemn in others the faults we do ourselves. Paul was centuries ahead of Freud in this regard. That's what he's speaking of here. He says, when we judge others, we're judging ourselves because we do the same things. But we say we don't commit sexual immorality. Well, by Jesus' standards, we probably do. Greed, arrogance, hatred, idolatry, anything we put before God. Now, it's tempting to go and say immediately what Paul is saying was what Jesus said, do not judge. It is the most misquoted verse in the whole Bible. Do not judge. Do not judge. I, I, before I came out this morning, I responded to someone who stuck the boot into me for being judgmental, to which the obvious response is, you're judging me. <laughs> you know, but uh, the ultimate sin is do not judge. Uh, I, I imagine if any of you stood before a judge in presenting your court in law and said, judge, 
do not judge. Um, that's not going to go down too well. Paul, and nor was Jesus, by the way. When Jesus said, do not judge, that you do, he then says, don't throw your pearls before swine. That's, that's a pretty heavy judgment to place upon people. I'm not going to give you, tell you this because you're swine. So but what Paul is saying here, he's saying, don't suspend your critical faculties. He's not saying that all criticism of others is wrong, but it is a call not to condemn because we don't know. And because we ourselves are hypocrites. We set a high standard for others and a very comfortably low one for ourselves. Paul had been preaching for 25 years to unrepentant Jewish leaders. And he's saying, you're not as moral as you think you are. I'll say this as a preacher. Give me an honest atheist any day over a, a religious Christian at one level. That religious people are the hardest people in the world to preach to. Um, my son is in a church planting in a working class housing estate in Dundee, Scotland. And um, his sermons are on the line sound, and they're hilarious because the people he's speaking to have no idea. They've not gone to church or anything like that. They have no idea. You're not supposed to answer back. And so it's just great. So I, the last Sunday, I couldn't stop laughing because like he had a Q&A. So right, any questions about the passage was Philippians 2 or something. And this guy says, I, I want to know. See, you are talking about sport. You think the World Cup's going to be on this year? <laughs> it's just brilliant. I just love the way that, you know, often you'll find with religious people, it's the Lord and they'll agree and they'll do it for them, but they just don't take any of it in. And that's what Paul is saying here. The self-righteous judge falls under God's judgment. He's saying, our religion won't save us. That's very important. He's saying the self-righteous judge shows contempt. He says for God's kindness, God's forbearance, God's patience. That really is a quote from uh, the Apocrypha, the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. Thou, our God, art kind and true and patient, and patient. And Paul is quoting that in just the same way as he will quote pagan poets. He's quoting uh, this Jewish Apocrypha. He says, well, how are we showing contempt for God? He says, we're using theology and we're saying God won't judge us, but it's a presumption. And he's saying there's hypocrisy there. And of all hypocrisies, I think religious hypocrisy is the worst. The assumption I won't be judged because I'm religious is challenged here. You're not saved because you're a Jew. You're not saved because you're a Christian in the commonly understood sense of the word, or a Muslim, or a Hindu, or a good pagan. So verses 6 to 11 says why. God is fair. He doesn't show favoritism. He judges according to truth. There are two outcomes, eternal life for those who do good and wrath for those who do evil. Now, what he's saying here is God uses the same standard of judgment for everybody. He doesn't judge us for what we don't know, and he doesn't judge us for what is not our responsibility. He's talking here about the day of judgment, which is a public occasion in which evidence will have to be displayed. The dead are judged according to what they've done. And what we do is what matters. With you, Lord, it's unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. Psalm 62, verse 12. Peter talks about, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. He's saying doing evil results in judgment. Anyone who does wrong, says Colossians 3.25, will be repaid for their wrong. And there's no favoritism. There's a, 
a, a selfishness in there. He speaks about selfishness. And he's saying doing good results in eternal life. Now, those of you who are evangelical Christians, are thinking, whoa, this is very, very much sounding like a religion of works. And in a sense, it is. Because there are two ways to be saved. The first is the way that most human beings think they can be. So they think, if I just do enough good, then God will accept me. But God's standard is fair. And this is the thing. Yes, you can be saved by doing good if you do it perfectly and if you do no wrong. But there's nobody like that. Nobody. I'm not being political here, but one of the most astonishing things I've ever heard President Trump say, and he said some astonishing things, um, I, I never thought that he would be matched by anyone, but it seems the Americans have found a candidate to match him. That's Joe Biden, so let me just be equal here. But I, I heard Trump say at one point, what sins do I have to be forgiven for? And he genuinely believed it. And I thought, not only a narcissist, but anyway, uh, just, just it's quite remarkable that anyone could think that. So, yeah, you can be saved if you do good all the time, perfectly, without any evil. But God is fair. That's not going to happen. Not one of us will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment. In the end, justice will be done. And there's a sense in which that should terrify us. The people who are raising their fists and saying, no justice, no peace, don't seem to realize that in raising their fists, they're punching themselves. That's very serious in that sense. So, going on, verses 12 to 13, he says to the religious people, having the law is not enough. Enough. Obeying it is necessary. If you sin apart from the law, and if you sin under the law, it's the same thing. Now, what he says here is very, very interesting, because uh, last week, or two weeks ago, we spoke about how the creation tells us about God's eternal power and divine nature earlier in Romans 1. Here, he says, well, what about those who don't have the Bible? He says, yeah, yeah, but everyone has God's law written on their hearts. It's conscience. Now, there's an, uh, I've heard Richard Dawkins explain what conscience is. He regards it as an evolutionary throwback. Um, I don't think it is. I think that fundamentally, all human beings have a sense of right and wrong. In fact, you are severely handicapped if you have no sense of right and wrong. In fact, you, you probably should be locked away because you will do enormous harm to people if you don't have any sense of right and wrong. We do have a sense of right and wrong. But it's like James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We have the law, but we're not really able to do it. It's a basic principle of justice that all who have sinned will also be judged. It's also a basic principle of justice that you are not judged according to a law you do not know. Which is very interesting because sometimes I hear evangelical Christians saying, do you know this? Uh, people are judged because they do not follow Christ. Well, actually, if they've never heard of Christ, that seems profoundly unfair. And it is profoundly unfair. And it's not what the Bible teaches. People are judged according to what they know and how they act in a court. Now, they need Christ to save them. But it's a bit like if you really believe that, then one of the best things you could ever do is just kind of say, well, I'm not going to tell people about Jesus. And then they won't be judged for having rejected him. People are judged on the basis of what they already know. Verses 14 and 15 tell us the law is revealed in our hearts. Our atheist friends are right, by the way. It's a mistake uh, to think that 
Um, you only get morality if you're religious or if you read the Bible. In fact, often religion will distort morality and will distort the conscience that you have. You don't need a religious book to get morality. We have morality by virtue of being human and being created in the image of God, which is why none of the, the lawyers here will ever prosecute a case against a dolphin or a cockroach. Or um, I've, I, I've told this story before because it's my favorite animal story. It's a bit macabre, but uh, the elephant called Mary in Kentucky, uh, where else, who um, trampled on her, her handler and the good people of that town, I think it ended up being called Maryville, uh, the good people of that town decided that Mary was guilty and needed to be tried and then hung, which was extremely difficult, as you imagine, for an elephant, a rope wouldn't do. So they had to get a crane with uh, extra strength chains and stuff, and they hung Mary the elephant. Now, I'm sorry, but my, my father was once nearly killed by a pig. By the way, pigs are the most intelligent of animals and also mega vicious. And, and he was nearly killed by a pig once. Would we go and shoot the pig? Because, you know, or um, just give another example. Pigs will often, if, when their piglets are born and they've got several of them, their eyes are not open. If you go and touch the piglets before their eyes open, often the mother will eat them. Now, are you going to... What, do you, what would you do with a, a human mother who did that? They'd be prosecuted. But you're not going to do that to animals. Why? Because we have God's law in our hearts. We have morality by virtue of being um, human and being created in the image of God. So read Aristotle's Ethics or Plato's Republic. And they reflect the notion of law and justice and right and wrong. When it, it says here there are laws in themselves, it does not mean we just make up our laws. It means that by virtue of being human, we have God's law in our heart and we're moral beings. Um, that's what conscience is. Now, I think conscience is a hugely, hugely important thing. And I think, by the way, one of the most important things for anyone here is to keep a good conscience. It is incredibly important. Here I stand, I can do no other. If we're loyal to the good, we know we'll be saved, but it's a very big if. Because some thoughts accuse us, some thoughts defend us, our own thoughts condemn us. Even by our own standards, we're condemned. In this particular court, our hearts, on which the requirements of the law have been written, our consciences prodding us, correcting us, our thoughts acting and sometimes excusing us. Let me make an observation just in general about society today. Whether we, When we forget God's law, whether written or in our hearts, we end up with disaster. Why? If we treat people like a bank, blank slate who don't know right from wrong and they have to be told it, then it never ends. So you move from Ten Commandments to, um, I, I don't know the figure now, I'm sure it's more, but in the United Kingdom when Tony Blair was in power, there were 10,000 new statute laws every year. So one thing I will say, none of you guys here are going to be out of work. <laughs> in, a, in a secular bureaucratic society because everything you have to make a law you have to make a law you have to make a law I just read through the guidelines just out of curiosity for uh, Victoria I, I was thinking oh my goodness that's just um, just quite remarkable how many detailed laws there are I, I mean I, I love I, I once saw a jar of peanut butter it said peanut butter on it do you know what the label was on by law may contain peanuts. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you have a peanut allergy and you cannot understand that peanut butter has peanuts, then you probably don't
don't deserve to be in this world. No, that's maybe a bit harsh. But, um, we have we have such an infantilized society. You know, don't put your hand in the fire. And I, I remember at Dundee Railway Station, you'd walk down the stairs and always over and over again on the loop, please be careful on the stairs. Please be careful on the stairs. Why? It's because of you lot. Sorry, I'm not just, I'm letting my frustration out against lawyers. Because somebody trips on those stairs, they're going to sue them. And then the company, the rail company could say, actually, we warned you. <laughs> you know, be careful on the stairs. Peanut butter may contain peanuts. Um, now, this is not saying that we all know God's law perfectly. In fact, it's darkly that we see God's law. There's an awareness we often need to be reminded. And sometimes, as Paul also says, our consciences are seared as with a hot iron which is why sometimes when God's word is preached, people get really mad because they are prodded and woken up to something that deep down they know is real and it just goes deep. Uh, verse 16, let me just finish with this. The judgment day will reveal all. We can't escape judgment. There will be a righteous judgment. God knows all. He can, he can judge our secrets. Uh, he judges all through Jesus. Moreover, the father judges no one, says Jesus, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Why is this good news? All of it. It's good news because there is justice in this unjust world. It's good news that everything is not random. It's good news that everything will be sorted out in the end. But there is also a dark side involved because of the judgment, which is also why the gospel shines even brighter because the gospel is here to save us from that judgment. John Stott says, we cheapen the gospel if we represent it as a deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and the other felt needs instead of as a rescue from the coming wrath. Um, there's plenty of other things we could say about conscience, how we get it, and, and what's involved. But let me just maybe finish with this uh, a verse, a line from a hymn. I... My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I don't think you get rid of guilt by, whether it's Catholic guilt, or Calvinist guilt, or secular guilt, or whatever kind of guilt. I don't think you get rid of it by therapy. I don't think we get rid of it by ignoring it. I think we can only get rid of it by uh, coming to know and serve Jesus Christ. All right, let's go with some questions. Yeah. Okay. I've got some here, and there'll be some, I think, on the phone. So, yeah, there are. Okay. Um, do verses six to eight contradict faith by justification? Well. Um, if you were listening to the talk, you got the answer, and if you weren't listening, I'm not answering again. <laughs> because no, it, I, I explain that it's, it doesn't do that. It's saying this is the way you can be saved. You can be saved if you're perfect, but because nobody's perfect, it doesn't apply in that sense. Also, good versus evil is not linear, as uh, put forward in the story of Job. I'm not sure I, I follow particularly that question. Um, Linear implies going from one thing to another. I think uh, I would suggest the question more means binary, that not necessarily direct opposites or easily understood. And that's true. They're not easily understood. Also, if you're referring to the story of Job, 
I think the problem there is assuming that people are judged in this life. So if you're sick, it's because of something you've done. Or actually, if you're from a Buddhist or Hindu background, you, you may suggest that, well, actually, you're disabled in this life because you were bad in a previous life. Um, you know, I obviously must have been very, very brilliant in a previous life because I was born Scottish. Uh, some of you suffer from not having that. If you're good in this life, in the next life, you could be born Scottish. Um, that's if you believe that. But it's just, I, I don't believe it. Um, it's not predestination, a form of favoritism. Well, that question uh, been, has been asked twice, uh, at least twice. No, I don't think it is. Because if you read the most stark teaching on predestination, which is in Romans uh, 9, God doesn't, we, we think predestination as choosing is a bit like, I don't know if this ever happened to you at school when um, people were playing football, soccer or whatever you call it, in the playground and lined up and you get to choose your team and you're always thinking, please don't let me be the last, you know, the kid that nobody wants. You know, the reject, you know, I just please don't let me be that. Um, and because I'll pick you, and I pick you, and I pick you, I pick you because you're strong, I pick you because you're good, I pick you because I like you, I pick you because I fancy your sister, you know, all these different kinds of things. Um, God doesn't do that, God doesn't choose people according to their ability, not many mighty, not many clever, so on. So, what Paul says is that he, he chooses the weak things of this world, and I, I, I don't think it's favoritism. Um, favoring people because of particular qualities or things that we like in them that we would do. Now, that doesn't mean predestination is uh, not a difficult subject, but it's one to which we shall return uh, and not answer uh, 1,500 years of discussion on it in two minutes. Um, the Quakers invoke conscience to override the legalization of slavery in the Bible. Was slavery ever just? You know, I believe that some of the early Quakers actually had slaves. The very interesting thing about slavery is we de facto assume it's wrong just now. But every single human society has had slavery in some form or other. Does that make it right? No, it doesn't make it right. If the Quakers were arguing against slavery, then what they needed to do was not invoke conscience, because conscience, their conscience could be laid in different ways but was actually to evoke the teaching about the equality of human beings, all human beings being made in the image of God. And therefore, is it right to enslave another human being? So, um, was slavery ever right? I doubt it. Um, but was it ever the lesser of two evils? Probably. And also, you've got to think very, very carefully about what slavery actually is. Um, can you explain Romans 2:14 to 15 emphasis of the law written on their hearts? Is this directed at the Romans or the Roman values of Paul's day? No, it's directed at every single human being. So in the church, there was a division between the Jewish people, uh, believers from a Jewish background, and the barbarians or the pagans or the Romans. And Paul says, listen, and he's talking to the Jewish people, he said, you're condemning these people because they don't have the law. Actually, they do have it. It's written on their hearts. And he's saying, I'm condemning you because you do have the law and you don't obey it. And in the same way, they will be judged according to the law that they have. So they don't have the detailed Torah, but they do have the law of God written on their hearts. And that's where all this aspect of uh, responsibility comes in. Um, I know my wife, my wife works in mental health. 
and uh, a lot of it legally because it's sanctioning people. Um, I think it's the same term that's used here, I'm not sure. Uh, and uh, a big argument is always, do they have capacity? If I stab somebody and I'm deemed not to have capacity, then it's unlikely I will go to jail for a fixed term. I'll probably be sent to a mental institution and so on. Um, do you have capacity? It's, it's important. And what Paul is saying here is we do have capacity, generally. Um, was the Roman church of Paul's day beset in trouble by too much judging of others? Yes, as are all churches, as, as am I, as are many others. We are instinctively judgmental. Um, even those who say they're not judgmental. Uh, how does a church regulate discipline in wayward members? Because you, you, you discipline without condemning. So even in the most serious cases, Paul talks about how he hands someone over to Satan that they may be saved on the day of judgment. And what he's saying is, right, fine. You want to be like this? You go be like this. And I'm hoping that you'll see the error of your ways and come back. So it's never condemnation. You can never say to somebody, you are 100% absolutely guaranteed to be in hell. You can't say that. We don't know. We don't know what people will do. So the next question fits in. Can Brenton Tarrant be forgiven? Um, assuming you know who Brenton Tarrant is, the answer is, if you can, he can. Um, I, one of the reasons I became a Christian was I studied uh, Weimar Germany at university and because I wanted to understand how the most educated, cultured, scientific nation in the world could end up with Hitler. And my conclusion was, there but for the grace of God go I, or go, go, go us. Um, I think that the image of the Auschwitz guard going home, playing after slaughtering people, hundreds of people in a day, playing with his kids, playing Mozart on the piano, having a nice meal. That, for me, was a horrifying image, but one that's very real realistic in terms of human nature. Can you please explain the meaning of saying, don't cast your pearls before swine? I, I, I bear not, I, if I, I, I'm so tempted to use humor by saying, don't speak to English people, but no, <laughs> that would be wrong and that would be racist. So, um, uh, look, what, all I'd say is, yeah, don't, don't talk to Melbourne people about coffee. No, that's, <laughs> no, no, sorry. I know you're listening. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I can hear you guys. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Look. Um, apologies to all Melbourne people. I understand your coffee is superior apart from in Newtown. Um, can you explain the meaning of saying don't cast your pearls before swine? Jesus is saying, look, sometimes in an argument, in a conversation, it's not worth your while bringing up everything that you've got that's good and just handing over to people who are not going to listen, who are just going to abuse. So I think that Jesus was predicting social media. And I think that this should be above every computer for every one of you who's on the internet or on social media. Don't cast your pearls before swine. So you've got this brilliant piece of wisdom. Maybe the guy who's calling you a fascist Nazi, maybe it might be better not to give it to them. You know, just let them wallow in the mud is, is in effect what he's saying. Um, how would you define swine was a deep, deep, deep insult with uh, for the Jewish people, obviously. Uh, swine were considered to be dirty, 
uh, animals. I just think Jesus is saying, don't get down in the dirt. Just don't do it. Um, what was it? I think it was, was it Michelle Obama who said, when they go low, we go high. It's a shame she forgot that in her conference speech a week ago. You know, it's a real shame because I think if she had gone high, instead of, instead of personally abusing somebody, it would have been so much more effective. Um, you know, my instinct, my gut instinct as a Scotsman is when someone goes for me, I just go back at them. But I've learned over the years that you can pour coals on a, on a, like a, on a conscience, you know, when someone's really vicious to you, you end up being really nice to them. And you do it knowing that they're going to get mad and they get mad and it's uh, a sense of satisfaction. But wrong, maybe that's, maybe that's the wrong motivation. Um, but I'm, what I'm saying is what Jesus is saying, just don't stick the boot in, you know. Um, actually, maybe sometimes you've got to be harsher to people who you regard highly, you know, that you're, you're trying to help them. But people who you think are just going to have a go at you and everything else, maybe it's not worth um, doing that. Uh, the last question I've got here, unless anyone else wants to send anyone in, um, is don't animals also have a conscience? No. No, I don't think so. I think uh, you have animals. Uh, do animals have feelings? Yes. Um, do animals have a sense of right and wrong? Not in they have an, ins an instinct but not in the sense of reasoning things through. Um, conscience is a uniquely human thing. Uh, I really think if you thought that animals had consciences, I, there was an attempt in Australia at one point, also in America, but, but and I'm not sure it's happened in the UK, to declare that um, chimpanzees had human rights. Well, that's a dangerous route to go down, because once you start doing that, you also got to say they have human responsibilities. And I'm not sure I ever want to put an animal on trial. That does not make any sense. And it seems to me that's an ideological view. Rather. I read an interesting phrase uh, in the Australian from, I think it may have been Greg Sherry that usually is, he usually has memorable phrases. And he talks about how the Communist Party of China, the ambassador who spoke, he talks about how they have uh, communism uh, doesn't deal in reality, deals with an alternative reality. Well, I think not just communism, but in much of the Western world at the moment, we are having alternative realities that you, you know, there, there aren't two genders, there are 101 genders, for example. You can't say if you're male or female. Someone just mentioned earlier that at a works thing, they were asked to, you know, identify male, female, or other, or rather not say, and most people said rather not say. So I think the only counselling, it worries me that these people are lawyers, but uh, they, they would rather not say if they're male or female. You know, I think when I'm up in a court next time and ask questions, I'm thinking, you know, I'd rather not say. Um, that, that, that would be an interesting one. But no, I don't think animals have a conscience. Do we have anything else? We've got a couple more minutes if anyone wants to throw anything else in. Feel free from the floor. Or you can let it go. Yeah. Sorry, if I pass the Francis Harris one. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, because the reason I'm asking is with the Muslims, I said that he can't be forgiven um, ever. And yeah. I'm just thinking, if he goes back into jail, uh, well, obviously for the rest of his life, um, and he does get the Bible and he does convert to Jesus Christ, I mean, I think obviously he'll be saved, but the Muslims are saying absolutely, you know, I assume, no way he can be saved after what's going down. So 
should have added to that cost. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the Muslim view is really interesting because they have such an arbitrary view of God, and in my view, a lawless view of God, that actually they also believe that if you are a really good Muslim and do nothing wrong, such is the sovereignty of God that you die and on the day of judgment you can still go to hell. It's an, it's an, it's an, it's an astonishing teaching. Um, the idea of no forgiveness as well is, I, I think, an astonishing one. Now, Doug Murray in his book, The Madness of Crowds, says that that's a doctrine that's now an endemic part of our society. So I, I think um, we hold out forgiveness, but it's a tremendous cost. We don't, I'm not saying this is a light thing. It is possible. Yes, it could be forgiven. But yeah. Um, building on, on Brenton Harris, I think yes. it's tempting for us to see forgiveness as a, a get out of jail free card. Yeah. Uh, would you say that for someone to to truly repent and to experience God's forgiveness, it would necessarily involve a, I suppose, a significant change in their heart, not just them saying, sorry, I'm forgiven, but to fully appreciate the depth of what they've done? Oh, the, the, the attempt to use Christ or the Bible or whatever as a means of self-justification is, it, it, it condemns you even further. You know, you can't, you can't do that. I mean, it's, in Isaiah, he talks about come and buy without cost. But there was a cost. It was the death of Christ. That's the cost. And it's a phenomenal cost. But I would say this. Absolutely anybody here can be forgiven for everything that they have done. But what you cannot do is use the gospel as a get-out-of-jail-free card. So I used to think, before I became a Christian, I used to think, do you know what? I'm beginning to think this is true. But I'd quite like to enjoy life first. So I think I'll hang on till I'm about 99. And I'll just go wild. And then at 99, I'll say, God, I'm sorry. And then it's a bit like... You know, I have some Catholic friends, and I know that not all Catholics believe this, So, uh, but these are um, people who use their Catholicism as there are Protestants who use their Protestantism. They would, they would go and confess on a Friday night what they were going to do on the Saturday night. Uh, no, no, that's not how it works. So I don't think, I don't think we can use God in, in, in that way. I, 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 do you know... Here's an interesting thing. The Apostle Paul, towards the end of his days, bearing in mind that he'd been responsible for murdering Christians, towards the end of his days, he doesn't say, you know, I'm forgiven, I'm free, which was all true. He writes and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He doesn't say, I was. He says, I am. And I think as a Christian, as you go on, you come to realize and understand more what that means. Not so that it cripples you, but actually so that it frees you. Because, and one of the things it frees you from, and this is where I think we'll stop, is uh, when we come in and want to judge other people. So, um, you know, I think for me, it is always immensely helpful to think, uh, would I go there? I, I was deeply, deeply challenged by a book by a non-Christian I can't remember her second name now, but it's Mary. Uh, it's Albert Speer, his battle with truth. He's the only Nazi in the Nuremberg trial who professed sorrow for what he did. Uh, and reading that book is, is utterly fascinating because she documents in detail his uh, struggle with coming to terms with what he'd actually done. And he didn't do that, oh, God will forgive me thing. 
he, he, he I, I don't know if he ever became a Christian or not, or how he dealt with that, but it was a real battle and a real issue. So what you raised, it's a real battle, it's a real issue. All right, thank you very much. We're going to leave it there, I think, Peter. Yeah, please join me. Thank you, David, for his, for his efforts. Um, well, uh, a lot of people would say that uh, our society has an absolute identity crisis at the moment. Certainly, identity politics is with us. But next week, we're going to hear from uh, James Harrix, who's a minister in Sydney, uh, about the, the new identity that Jesus can bring. So please join us same time next week. Thank you.